I'm Dr. Lara Devgan. I'm a plastic surgeon in New York City, the CEO of Scientific Beauty, and of course, a major beauty enthusiast. You are listening to Beauty Bosses, where we chat with fellow industry leaders who are shaping beauty, fashion, wellness, and all things pretty. Hi everyone, I'm so excited about this episode of Beauty Bosses. Today we have Craig Elbert, who's the CEO and co-founder of Care Of, which is a really innovative and cool company. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, so at Care Of, uh, basically we're trying to make it easier and more delightful to figure out what vitamins and supplements could be right for you. Based on a general problem that I had myself, which is you go into that vitamin aisle and it's like, what is all of this stuff here? Mm -hmm. uh, does it have science? What's right for me? How do I wade through all of it? Uh, the way that it works is you come to our site. We learn a little bit about you. We learn about your goals, your diet, lifestyle, and your values. And based on that, we've worked with doctors to give a recommendation of what could be right for you. And then we deliver that to you each month in little daily packets. They all have your name on it all nicely branded, high quality ingredients, transparency on supply chain, transparency on science, and ultimately just trying to make it easier for people to live healthy. Yeah, so that's really interesting because I feel like you almost have a paradox of choice situation with vitamins where it's so overwhelming that at least for me, sometimes I'm like, okay, I just am not ready to make these decisions right now. And you exit the vitamin aisle. Exactly. That was the, the feeling that I had myself. Uh, it's one where I didn't really have experience in the category, but more approached it as someone who's been a consumer. Uh, and I just had that exact feeling of just what is all of this stuff? I, how do I even figure out what's right for me? Um, and it is that paradox of choice. And I think the goal for us was how do we just just make it a little bit easier for folks. Um, and that's kind of, for me, prior to care of, I spent time at Bonobos, the men's apparel retailer, entirely different industry. But the whole goal was how do we take a stagnant category, in that case, khaki pants, nothing's more boring than khaki pants, and make it delightful. And while there, I had the experience of trying to shop for vitamins and supplements and thought, okay, this is not a very delightful experience. How do we make it more fun, but also just make it easy and try to tackle that paradox of choice that you're talking about? Yeah, I like that concept of what's delightful because it's a newer thing. I feel like this is a post-2010 post concept of like the idea that you don't just get to buy the stuff you need and want, but that you also deserve to be delighted. Yes. And there's, I think it's like, you know, a special phenomenon and, um, and our generation is sort of uh, a big proponent of delight. So tell, tell me a little bit about why we have to be delighted when we buy stuff. Why can't we just get the stuff we need and pay our money and then leave the store? <laughs> exactly. It's a great question. I think there's a couple of things at play. I think specifically, so I'll, zoom, I'll talk about vitamins and supplements specifically, but first I think there's a general feel of over time people had bad customer i think more and more you started having bad customer service and bad customer experience where large corporations and retailers started devaluing interacting with customers and so it was all just the things on the shelf and maybe there was even a commissioned salesperson and i think there was just became a real consumer pain point around how do we actually shop and transact in a way that isn't a pain so that's one which is i think people have you know ran into kind of pain points in shopping and taking things home and, and anything that's more delightful is just going to, you're more likely to talk about it, more likely to repeat it. I think specifically with vitamins and supplements, 
there's something that's really interesting to me about the challenge of building a habit. So it's a healthy habit that you're trying to do every single day. And the way that a habit works is you have that cue when you're kind of reminded of what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, then you'll actually take the activity, build the habit, but then you need that reward. Otherwise, you might not do it again. And you, there's a classic example in the book, The Power of Habit, how brushing your teeth used to be such a pain and people couldn't build the habit until they started building the kind of minty freshness into the toothpaste so that you would get this tingling feeling. And once you were done brushing your teeth, you would feel better. And that tingling feeling actually didn't impact how clean your teeth was, but it just made people feel more gratified and caused them to actually build a habit. And I think the challenge with vitamins and supplements is a lot of time the impact is not immediate. It's not like having a shot of coffee. Um, it's it's you know often something that's not immediately experiential. And so how do you make something delightful so that people are going to remember to do it um, and to be able to build that habit? So I think it's a combination of just culturally people looking for better and better experiences when it comes to kind of goods that they're purchasing or, or brands that they love. But particularly with this category, it's being able to actually help build a healthy habit. Yeah, that's neat because you imprint stuff more if it's a hobby or a daily life routine that you're looking forward to. Like, you know, you, you can't tear someone away from their morning coffee because they look forward to <laughs> yes, it. Exactly. But yeah. And vi that, vitamins are not historically something like that too. No. But, and yeah. I think actually I was thinking when you were talking about the toothpaste, if part of that isn't the, um, the memorableness factor of the taste of the smell, because yes. those things like olfaction, that's so tied into, you know, the neural roots of memory and wanting to build a habit. Yeah, it is fascinating. The, the brain, the way that it gets, you know, sends off this dopamine hit where once you've done something and you get that dopamine hit, it starts building that pathway. And so how do you actually uh, in some ways kind of like mimic that if the product itself isn't going to immediately give that? Are there things that you can do? And so for us, it's small things. Uh, a couple of things specifically that we do are uh, you get your daily pouch and it has your name printed on it. So it's supposed to be kind of like a little fun. It's got your name and then it's got a little note on there, either a quote or some fun fact or some fun challenge. So ideally, that's one piece that people will look forward to, not dissimilar from a Snapple cap. And then we also have uh, an app where people can, on their phone, just let us know when they took their vitamins and then they get... These, it's almost gamification where they get like a little streak that they've built and then based on how many days they've taken their vitamins in a row, they might get some sort of reward. Uh, and so for us, it's trying to figure out what are the little dopamine hits that we can give people um, for living a healthy life in a way that helps them helps them to build that habit. Yeah. Isn't that a lot of wasted packaging if you're putting vitamins in a daily pouch every day? It's, it's a great question and something that we uh, look at a lot at the company. So I think... It depends here. So first I'll say that one thing that we are looking at doing right now is we have our eyes on compostable packages mm -hmm. uh, so that you can actually com compost them. And then we're trying to track down a source that's recyclable. Um, I think that the piece right now on the actual pouches, it depends on if someone's just taking one or two vitamins a day, then the packaging is definitely going to be more than if they just had the bottles. As you start to have three, four, five uh, different supplements that you might be taking. Uh, that cardboard box, you basically have a cardboard box with each of the pouches, and it can wind up with actually less waste than if you were just taking the bottles on a daily basis. But we do have an initiative right now where we're 
looking at all the different options for streamlining uh, streamlining the packaging. Then the other thing that I was thinking about, because you know, vitamins are in a unique space. It's sort of a space that's halfway between medicine and wellness, where you're not really establishing a doctor-patient relationship with anyone because you're not a doctor. It's just sort of, you know, click through for your concerns. Um, but on the other hand, I think anytime you enter the sphere of health, people start to think about, you know, what am I going to see on the other end? Am I going to have better gut health? Is my hair going to grow stronger? Am I going to do a better job of building lean muscle mass? And there, there is a little bit of a, you know, are we seducing people into thinking that this is a cure for their ailments? And how, how do you balance that concept of entering the health space without overpromising and entering into a medical relationship? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things here that I think about. One is on the front end in terms of how do you give someone recommendations um, on what could be right for them and how do you know if there's science, is this actually going to have an impact for them? And then two is how do you, is it possible to close the feedback loop? And for me, I think to tackle the, the first part uh, first, which is you have, um, you have a range, uh, you know, oftentimes people categorize vitamins all together and they say either uh, either, hey, vitamins don't do anything, they don't work, there are studies that say it doesn't do anything, or they, or it could be someone who believes in them uh, and says, you know, they've impacted my life and done all these different things. I think the reality when you look at science is you have a spectrum where you have certain things uh, that will have scientific consensus. So for instance, like a, you know, being able to have folate or folic acid is something that has been studied, you know, in the Journal of American Medical Association as having an impact in the prenatal term to help prevent neural tube defects. So that's one where it's like, maybe you don't feel it, but there is heavy research. Exactly. Strong evidence. Then you go down the line and you have something like a vitamin D, which there's strong research, maybe not quite as strong as folate, but pretty strong in terms of people lacking it and not getting enough and it having an impact long-term on bone health, potentially immunity and other things. Uh, So you have some things in the consensus area and then you have things in the emerging area, which would be like probiotics, which you definitely hear of some people who probiotics have just changed their lives in terms of help them with their digestion and had it be really experiential. But at the same time, a lot of the research on probiotics is is emerging. Uh, And so I think wanting to expose that to people. And then if you go further down, you have some herbals which have been used for thousands of years, but may not have as much medical consensus science behind it. And so what we want to be able to do is show people the range and just be upfront and do what we call honest guidance, which is like, hey, if you're looking to take care of yourself, here's some things you could consider. Here's the amount of research out there and letting that person make a judgment call, but being transparent in a way that I think isn't traditionally done in a retail experience. So the front end is how do we kind of share what research is out there and try to manage expectations based on that research. On the back end, I actually think that there's a lot of really potential, potentially interesting things to close the feedback loop over time uh, as a direct consumer business of as we start knowing which supplements people are taking. So for instance, if someone's taking magnesium because they're having trouble sleeping, my longer term vision for the business is, okay, now we, we know that they're taking magnesium. They're in their app. They're, taking, they're saying, I took my magnesium today. Now can we actually plug into uh, an Apple Watch or a Fitbit and start actually tracking on large sample sizes and see, is this actually having an impact? So if you imagine at scale, 
uh, if we have you know hundreds of thousands or, or millions of customers who are telling us what they're taking, we're checking in with how they're feeling, and we're also plugged into the quantified self, can we start to be able to show, maybe not always at an individual level, but at a sample size level that things are having an impact. How many um, people do you have right now subscribing? So right now we're around 100,000 or so. Okay, and it's a subscription service. Yes, yeah, so it's a monthly subscription, exactly. What's the average financial burden for someone who's um, a subscriber? It ranges, so it's around $40 or so on average per month. Um, some people as low as $20, some people who um, have things that they want to be taking that they add to their pack as high as $90, but generally kind of 40 to $45. Okay, that's awesome. Um, and you are sort of a marketing whiz. You had your background in marketing, right? Yes, that's correct. I, I don't know if I'd say a whiz, but I did marketing prior <laughs> did to care of. Exactly. Um, and um, tell me like, kind of what your marketing experiences were like before when they were focused on basic khakis and now as they've evolved into the vitamin space. Yeah, um, so I first started, I mean, prior to Bonobos, I was really in the financial, like did financial stuff, um, a little bit less interesting to me, and then transitioned over at Bonobos, made a transition from doing numbers to doing the marketing side. And I think the piece that I love about marketing and just building businesses, consumer brands is trying to identify where do customers have a pain point? How do we help try and resolve that for them and how do you build a relationship with a customer and so I think for Bonobos it was you know guys can't find pants that fit well khaki pants that fit well how do we show them that our pants fit better but then also how do you use um, use social media use kind of a direct conversation that brands can have today to actually start building relationships and building promoters of your brand building people who are passionate about it people who really understand what you're trying to do and want to spread the word. Um, and I think that part is really fun for me, which is storytelling, uh, being able to create an emotional connection. And I think increasingly today, I love, you know, for me personally, I love the combination of storytelling, but also the quantification that happens is you have, you're able to see with all of the data where, you know, what's working and what's not working. And so there's this nice mix of uh, quantification that happens on the marketing side crossed with the softer stuff uh, of storytelling, brand, look and feel, all of that. And for me, that's just like a really rich, fun territory to, to explore from a, you know, just explore from a business standpoint. Did your marketing at Bonobos focus on business to consumer, like uh, social media? Yeah. Yeah. So we, Bonobos was one of the really kind of the first direct consumer brand. So we were um, you know, a couple of years before War Warby Parker, and then you had Warby Parker, you had Harry's, Dollar Shave Club, Glossier, um, all these D to C businesses that came uh, afterwards. But Bonobos, founded by Andy Dunn and Brian Spaley, uh, they they were one of the first, if not the first, to kind of build a brand direct consumer online, um, as opposed to kind of being a, a retailer or a brand going into wholesale. So yeah, everything that we did for the first years of Bonobos was all direct to consumer, all digital only, um, very social media driven, very um, digitally native. And how would you compare that to your branding strategy with Kara? Yeah. Or your marketing strategy, yeah. I guess. I mean, I think there were a number of takeaways from Bonobos that I've thought about with Kerov. I mean, the first one is that you need to have, um, you know, that, that press 
and word of mouth and organic customer love is something that needs to be there early on before you even think about doing paid media or putting money behind it. Because if if press doesn't pick up your story, if customers don't want to tell their friends about your product, the reality is maybe you don't have a story. And so putting money behind it can just be wasting that money. And so I think one of the things that I saw um, Andy and the team do early on at Bonobos was get the word out there, build a passionate follower base. And so for Care Of, you know, the first few months we didn't spend any money on advertising, but we did focus on uh, PR. We focused on talking with customers, talking with influencers, uh, and trying to kind of build that organic connection. Um, and I think also the the delightful piece and trying to have a brand that people could relate to came from Bonobos too, which is like uh, investing heavily in customer service so that if someone has an interaction with the brand, that ideally that should be strong uh, and that should be feel fun uh, and, and get their questions answered. Um, and just generally kind of trying to build, um, build a brand that feels human and empathetic and that communicates in social media channels with, with that kind of right type of conversational voice. And a lot of that definitely came from learnings at Bonobos. So let's talk about social media for a second. Um, do you do you agree that Snapchat is dead and that the future is Instagram based? <laughs> oh man, I feel like I'm not a I'm not a millennial or Gen Z enough to answer that with confidence. Really? I feel like uh, the backwards baseball cap makes you an honorary millennial. Uh, it maybe makes me someone who dresses too young for themselves. Uh, um, uh, I. I don't know if Snap, I, I think I would not rule them dead. I mean, I definitely think that as Instagram rolled up, rolled out Instagram stories that they picked off, they kept Snapchat from, Snapchat has not been able to build an older audience. I still think that the younger audiences from what I understand and kind of people in high school and people in college are using Snapchat um, still in a way that I think is is very large and powerful. Um, I do think it's much, it's not as easy to use as an ad platform. Uh, and so I think that you don't see businesses gravitating there as much. I think they're definitely challenged as Instagram has picked off uh, a lot of their users by adding functionality. Um, so, so I think that they're, they're not, they're definitely not where they were a couple of years ago. Um, but I, I wouldn't rule them out. And that's maybe just because I don't feel confident enough in my knowledge to, to say for sure. <laughs> so, so that does, does that mean that you don't run your the Instagram account for Care Up, or you have marketing people who do? I, I, we have a marketing team who does. I mean, I'm definitely, I'm personally, yeah, big Instagram user, and I think that's our main focus for Care Of. I like it. It's um, a really cool Instagram. Everyone check it out. Care Of Vitamins on yeah, Instagram. Exactly. I'm looking at it right now. It's There's some funny memes. <laughs> Yeah, our, our team does a, a great job with the Instagram account. And for us, it's been huge. I mean, mm-hmm. Instagram has been our biggest driver in building the business in terms of attracting customers, interacting with customers. Um, and so, yeah, we have not done as much on Snapchat, but we also, you know, I think it's much more visual and permanent. And, yeah, and, yeah. and the, the pouches are very Instagrammable because, you know, it has your name on it and it says something cute and it, you like kind of want to take a picture of it. So I feel like exactly. that's smart. These days you can't make a business unless you've figured out how to Instagram it. Yes. I, and that was something that we consciously thought about in building the business, which is you have a category that's historically very private. People would put their vitamins in the kitchen cabinet behind a couple of things and it would not be out there in the open. And so that's 
as far as you could be from a social category. But we thought about if we wanted to make this something more social and shareable to help us grow faster, you know, packaging is a key piece of that, which is how do we design it in an attractive manner and how do we give people something they want to take a photo of and, and people like taking a photo of something with their name on it for sure. Um, we definitely do, I mean, as you mentioned before, the thinking through the waste piece is something that is is the right, is the balance that we are always yeah. kind of trying to navigate there. Okay, so last social media question. Do you think that influencer marketing is helpful or do you think consumers are savvy enough right now that they, that they see that and they don't care about it? Like, do you think influencer marketing is going the way of TV commercials? I think that influencer marketing definitely is interesting and can be impactful. I think that what's interesting is you have, it's a spectrum of, I think something like high level celebrities, you know, if you think about it kind of, TV ads where celebrities are endorsing a type of soda or something like that, Mm -hmm. that's on an extreme end where it it feels clearly paid and inauthentic. Mm -hmm. And then if you have on the other end, the nobody customer who, you know, took a photo of their product and posted it, that feels very authentic and they clearly didn't get paid. I think the challenging part is you have a lot of blurring in between. And so where that, where people where that trust breaks gets a little bit uh, is hard to tell because you can have some people who have millions of influencers. Um, you know, like I, I could say, for instance, like Chrissy Teigen is someone who has a great social media presence and does ads for, you know, does promotions for stuff. But I can see them being really effective because she still maintains an authenticity and yeah, it's sort she's of like, real. She's yeah, pretty she's legit real. and she's really like kind of nice and straightforward. Exactly. And so someone like that, I think her followers have, she has the trust there. And if she's doing something, it may be that she's getting paid for it on some stuff, but she makes that clear. And I think her followers still would check it out. And so I just think that authenticity becomes really important. Um, and consumers more and more, I would say, can smell out something that's not authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just because, you know, but bec- that alone does not say to me that people will be dismissive of influencers. It's more that consumers are wiser and look for that authenticity, look for kind of someone truly believing in a product. Um, and I think if that's there, then the influencer can still be really powerful. Yeah. Okay, so I wanted to switch tack slightly and ask you um, about the concept of making vitamins more fun, which I think that sugar bear hair vitamins have uh, have really gotten the heart and minds of 25-year-old <laughs> women around the world because th- they do tons of influencer marketing, yep. but they also, like, who doesn't want a gummy vitamin? And yep. I know when I was pregnant, my prenatal vitamins, I experimented with, I experimented with a bunch, chocolate ones, gummy yep. ones, caramels, until I just gave up and swallowed the regular ones again. But <laughs> I was just wondering about your thoughts on cool, more edible types of formats for to make vitamins a more palatable drug delivery mechanism. Yeah. I mean, I think that people love gummy vitamins and you've seen an explosion in the category if it's sugar bear hair or if it's Ollie or Smarty Pants, um, you see a number of brands doing it really well. And I think, you know, par- particularly I think about 
Ollie doing this well with just it's simple and delightful. It's you don't have to think about it. They they can taste good. Um, so you can see the clear attraction. I think the challenging thing is as consumers think about you know really focusing on their health and wellness, looking at sugar content, looking at sweeteners, and wanting to at the end of the day you're taking your vitamins and supplements because you're trying to have an impact on your health and wellness. And so I think that's the balance sometimes which people are wanting to, you know, I think for our customers, we started with the pill format because we wanted to feel like we had a product that was, had the highest likelihood of like actually having an impact and, and that also just, you know, erring on that side of um, making it, uh, ensuring that it was healthy and then creating kind of the gratifying experience around it. Um, I think over time, there's, you know, we talk, we, we debate this a lot internally, which is like, should we be doing, should we do gummy vitamins? Should we do sweetened vitamins? And I think there are, you will have people in the company who are super passionate about like, no, we don't want any of these sugar or any of these additives in our product. I tend to be a someone who just thinks about the consumer experience a bit more. And I think that they're the reality is there are plenty of people who get their vitamins from gummies and and it helps them live healthier. And so I, I personally am not dismissive of that and think it's an interesting place to explore. Um, but I also, in launching the company, frankly, I saw other people doing it, were already doing gummy vitamins well. And so it felt like that was... Of, you wanted your own niche. Yeah, kinda. yeah. And, yep, exactly. Do you? How many people are in your company now? We have about 50 people. And when did you um, found the company? So we started working on it end of 2015 and then launched in December 2016. So about 18, 20 months ago. Okay, that's amazing. That's incredible growth. 100,000 people and 50 employees in 20 months is (laughs) not too shabby. Um, Okay, so I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your origin story because a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are... Um, you know, age 15 to 50. And people are always interested in how people got started. So I know that you studied at Wharton and you started with a little bit of a more traditional business background, but can you talk about how going from your BA at Dartmouth to then being at Wharton and you were a Palmer Scholar, which is sort of a big (laughs) deal, um, how did that set the stage for this in terms of your, what you studied in school and how, and today? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest piece for me, so I went, I mean, out of, out of college, I sort of bounced between doing what I would say things that kind of are more expected. So I, and things that I'd I'd like to do, which is creating things. So I went into investment banking out of college, which is sort of like a typical route. um, And it was not fun for me. I spent two years in it, it was miserable. You know, I'd been an English major in college. I always oh, liked. Me too. Yeah, a, I have had so many reformed English majors exactly. on this podcast. I tell you, it's crazy. <laughs> and and I think because there's something there that was being able to re. I liked creating things, so played music, and then I went into this world of like financial world, and I, I it was not as inspiring for me. I wanted to be closer to a product that I really cared about, uh, and so from there I went to Warner Music Group. Um, and I felt like there a lot of people cared about music, but it was such a large organization. I wanted to be closer to the product and went back to business school, really wanting to be 
had a startup or found a business where I had a product that I was really passionate about um, and and that you know I, I felt like I could actually create something and you know I wound up serendipitously run you know meeting one of the early team members at Bonobos and then met with their team as they were building it out when there was only 10 people and it was just it was just a really good feeling of the chance to create something um, and I could just feel you know my curiosity sparked I could feel the passion sparked but I was also working with a lot of really talented people who were smart trying to tackle something together and that was just addictive I you know I think my time at Bonobos I wasn't uh, I wasn't one of the founders but I had that feeling when it was small of just we're creating this none of this existed uh, when a, when you have a business like that it's really you can really have an impact it's also a lot of emotional highs and lows where sometimes you think it's going to be the biggest thing ever other times you think it's going to crash and burn and kind of going through that whole journey with bonobos I was there for six and a half seven years but then really wanting to go and do it again myself of just that act of creation of creating something that didn't previously exist trying to solve problems, trying to have an impact on someone's life uh, was really something that motivated me and was worth taking a risk to build something to build something new. And I think for me, that was always kind of that that balance between doing maybe something the more expected route, uh, you know, like a finance route or something like that with a desire to create something and and build something new um, and kind of risk adjusting myself along the way. So do you guys own the supply chain of vitamins or is that, you know, more of a um, private label or a, you know, third party source type of thing? Yeah, we we own the full supply chain. Um, So our one of the one of my lessons at Bonobos was you need when it comes to supply chain, you need people who've done it before. The founders at Bonobos initially tried to kind of source some product and you just spend money and get bad product and supply chain is something where you want an experienced professional. So when founding care of, I spent time trying to think about which brands I admired who had high quality. There was a brand called new chapter who, um, I had admiration for and had a great reputation for quality. My wife was taking their prenatal vitamins. Um, and so I spent a lot of time recruiting their head of supply and their R and D person, uh, who were up in Vermont, I would just, I would send in LinkedIn messages. I would drive up there uh, and just chat with them and try to pitch them what we were doing and was eventually able to get them aboard. Uh, and with them came, a, you know, 15, 20 years of relationships. So they knew all the ingredient suppliers, the contract manufacturers, uh, and they were able to ultimately now we have about 20 different ingredient suppliers globally that allow us to have, you know, magnesium from Irish seawater, wild Alaskan salmon for fish oil sourced in a sustainable manner, um, you know, red algae from the Icelandic ocean going into our calcium. Uh, these, these really rich and efficacious um, quality ingredient stories um, based on kind of just their years of knowing what kind of uh, ingredients were out there. Uh, so we have those ingredient suppliers globally. It's all shipped to the U.S. where we have three manufacturing partners who do all of the testing to make sure that the product is what it is supposed to be, to make sure that it's safe. Uh, Then they tablet it or encapsulate it, then they test it again, and then they ship it to us. Uh, And then we do the, we do it testing one more time, and then we um, ultimately then package it and ship it to the customer. Um, But 
to answer the question, we do all the formulations. They're thoughtful on all the ingredient suppliers. It's definitely not just like private label. Um, it's actually trying to be thoughtful on every single ingredient. Where is the best source of that ingredient and how do we, how do we build that into our product? I read a really um, cool story about you in advance of this podcast, and it was about how you and your business partner started a fake company in order <laughs> to um, make your real company, yes. which I thought was like such a good idea. And I think that this would be really good. People are the comments we get from these podcasts are always like, "We want more specific advice because everybody <laughs> wants to start the next big yep. billion dollar business and be the next Warby Parker." Yep. Um, and. I really liked this. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about Beats Vitamins. Yes. Yeah, so this was, it sprung out of attention of my co-founder is, you know, kind of has been an entrepreneur before and is very much more in, he, he shapes what we call the digital product, which is our quiz. And usually if you get advice when building a uh, building a digital product, there's always this idea of the minimum viable product, uh, which is just your MVP. How do you create something that, you know, that you can get out there quick and iterate on and learn lessons of, is this working or is this not working? Um, you know, on my side, I was thinking about, I want to build a brand that's, you know, longstanding, you know, is, is lives for years, uh, has a great introduction, has great products tied to it. People are going to be ingesting these things. Uh, and so the idea of launching a minimum viable product of our business and just putting something out there as care of early on that was just like not going to be high quality just felt to me like it was going to doom the brand long term. But his point was we needed to understand how consumers interacted with the quiz. How do we make these recommendations? How do we get feedback? Uh, and so what we did was rather than launching uh, a care of site, we created um, essentially a fake brand uh, called Beats Vitamins. And then we would direct uh, Facebook traffic to it and friends and family and have people take the quiz and then get their feedback and get a sense of how likely they were to purchase. So we weren't selling, you know, we weren't selling a bunch of products because that was for regulatory reasons. But it was one where we used that to get feedback, uh, to tell what worked, to test different ad concepts, um, all of these things so that we could then while working on the branding in the background, um, revise the, the digital product, revise the experience in a way that when we actually launched, um, we felt confident in, in what we were launching. And I think this, this also to me stemmed from, you mentioned Warby Parker. So Jeff Rader, who's the founder of Harry's, uh, the razor company, also a co-founder of um, Warby Parker, he'd given me the advice of you, you only launch your brand once. Uh, and, and Harry's, you know, had a great launch out of the gates. They, were super impressive and got a bunch of press. And so the, for me, the idea of launching kind of like a half halfway established brand as an MVP just didn't feel like an option. And so, you know, by doing that beats vitamins experience, we had confidence in what we were doing, but we were able to launch care of just once and really invest in PR to, to get off the ground in a, in a meaningful way. If someone has a limited budget for investing in PR, what are three specific things you would tell them to do? that are essential? Uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely say people often ask if they had marketing budget, what would they do? And they usually assume I'm gonna say invest in Facebook ads and Google ads, but I would start off with by investing in PR. I would find- Does that mean like a glossy public relations firm? It doesn't need to. I think early on, depending on where you're at, 
you want someone who's going to hustle for you and be able to help you shape the story and and get it out there. So to me, I think early on, usually you you want to find a someone who's usually probably a consultant or starting their own firm who's uh, looking to establish themselves hungry but still connected. Oftentimes this is a case of somebody who maybe worked at a large glossy firm and then spun off to found their own agency and they've got their own entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, I've found that to be useful um, in the early days of, of having uh, one of those consultants who's who's able to get your story out there. I think the key is you need to be on the same page with them on the narrative. You need to know that they have the right contacts so they can actually be in touch with folks. And then there's a reality of you also need to be on top of them because they have a number of clients. And so you need to make sure that they're out there pitching, pitching your story. So it, it's definitely not easy. And I think the hardest thing about PR is it's very ephemeral. It's very hit or miss. It's not as quantifiable as a Facebook ad. But it is really important in building trust, building a story, and and trust, and really kind of testing if you if you have a story that's resonating. Yeah, and I know. I mean, maybe I'm the only one who doesn't like Facebook ads, but I just never click on them. I, they obviously must work because yeah. there are 2.19 billion people on Facebook, right, and one billion on Instagram. So I suppose if you pay to play, you're going to get something. But yeah, they do work. Um, it's great. I mean, I remember when I first started doing marketing at Bonobos back in 2010, I remember setting up Facebook ads myself and thinking the same thing of no one clicks on these. And then you'd see that people either clicked on them or viewed them and made a purchase. And I was like, oh, they, they do work. But I think that it's not long. And so I think they can be part of your portfolio at some point when you're building a brand. But I think early on, it's so important to try to get organic trust and and get those press stories uh, just to see that you are, that you have a story that resonates. I think it's going to build credibility. And then frankly, it's just then going to make your Facebook ads work better too, because people will have their first touch with you will not be from a Facebook ad, but will be from a press story or someone who they admired, you know, interacting with your product. Yeah. And I've heard that as sort of folk wisdom that like the consumer needs to be exposed to your name or your brand a handful of times, half a dozen times or something before they click to buy. Yeah, that exactly. This it's always a question: What's the magic number of how yeah. many times they need? And what to be. is the magic number? I, I, Educate I, us. I do not know the magic number. Uh, I think it, it depends definitely on your product, um, and I do think that that's one that people should always think about when they're what their product is and what's the consideration, the purchase cycle, and the consideration cycle. So, for instance, if you're selling a mattress, that's a high, that's an expensive product that people are only buying, you know once every X number of years. Uh, so you might need a, a number of touches before they convert. Whereas, you know, for monthly vitamins, people are buying them more frequently. So maybe you don't need quite as many touches. But I think that always depends on what your product is and what the consideration cycle is. Do you practice what you preach in terms of taking vitamins? I do. Yeah, I mean, I can show you my Oh, let's app. see your packet. So, do you carry it with you? Oh, I took, well, I took my packet already, already, but I can show you my app which the app allows you to track your streak. And so you can see that I'm definitely not perfect, but you, um, I'm just showing the app, which you can get on the app store. Do you get a little reward if you get a streak of a certain amount? Yes, exactly. So here you can see 
this is my streak. So the, the red, you can see anywhere where it's red, that's a day that I took it. And anywhere where it's blank, fell off the wagon. And so it's like generally good, but I've like had times where I fall off the wagon. And then you, in our app, you can, each time you take it, you build a streak and you earn these carrots, which are just essentially little coins. And then you can go to the little store. And when you go to the store, you can buy, you, you build up these points and it's like, okay, I could buy like uh, a sweatshirt or I could buy a swell bottle or I could buy a free sample. And so the idea is you get these, uh, you earn what we call carrots, but they're just essentially reward points. The more you the build more you a streak, exactly, yeah. That's really cool. I like the thoughtful design because most people focus so much on the product, which on some level the product is king, right? The yep. product is everything and that's like the most important thing. But I feel like it's so common to focus so much on the product that you forget the entire consumer experience and like the concept of building loyalty and the joy and, you know, delightfulness of the experience of the app and the purchase and how easy it is to get it and what it looks like when you get it and yeah I agree yeah. And, and I think so much of the product is can be the experience too and it depends on the category but one of the biggest challenges people have with taking vitamins is remembering to take them or to know if they're doing something or to feel that reward and so we view the digital companion app as as equally part of the product if not even more I mean I think over time our vision for the app is is having more check-ins so we can see how you're doing and you can check in and you can see how am I doing versus where I was at before, how am I doing versus expectations. And I think that over time becomes just as much a part of your product as as the actual pills that you're ingesting. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, well, I feel like I could talk to you all day. I've never been more motivated to take my vitamins than I am right now. Um, I really feel like I fell off the wagon after my last baby was born, but I need to get on it again. There so you go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to download the Care-of app. Awesome. And, um, I wanted to just close by asking you um, our last two questions that we love to ask people about. Um, yep. This is Beauty Bosses, so I want to understand what beauty means to you and what being a boss means to you. Ooh. Yeah, I think beauty, I probably don't have the same answer as of beauty as, as others on the show, but I think that beauty is, to me, that feeling of just like confidence when you're feeling like you're looking good or you've got a good outfit and you feel healthy and happy and just uh, a little bit of swagger and confidence to do something a little bit different and to take well, swagger, risks. Swagger, that's good. I've never yeah. heard someone say that. That's good. <laughs> so I think swagger there. And then I think being a boss is, it's just about, and you, people have probably said this to this question before, but I think it's true, which is being able to uh, serve those who are working for you and with you uh, to bring out their best. I think the more that you, you know, I think there's a need when building a business to have the to have a vision, to set the vision, and to get people to buy into it. But then from there, it's about how do you help facilitate the people who are building it on a day-to-day -day business, a day-to-day -day basis. There's a reality, I can't get in the weeds on everything, so how do I get the best people and be empathetic to the challenges that they have? How do I empower them to make decisions? Um, and how do I ultimately serve them um, to, to be able to get to the outcome that we need? So I think it's setting a vision, serving those who are working for you, and, and frankly, sometimes then making choices on who the right people are to, to be working with you and building that business too. Yeah, that's awesome. 
Well, and then the last thing is that I, I love to gift my guests a product from my skincare line. And I was thinking about which product to gift you during this conversation. Right. And you know what? The perfect product is going to be um, our high-potency vitamin C, All right. which nice. is combined with vitamin E and ferulic acid and acetyl peptide because I feel like you're ingesting a lot of vitamins, but you're probably... Under-consuming yes. topical vitamins, which are so important for skin health. I would agree. Yes, I definitely am, and it's something that we've talked about internally of of how to yeah how do we think about topicals, and I think that's one where I definitely know that know that I could use a bit more there. So that's fantastic. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. And this was really fun. Thank you so much for being here. Excellent. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.